0: I'd like to ask you to um, get in your mind an individual that you might know this morning, someone perhaps that you work with or that you have family relationship with, whom you would consider to be very, very distant from God, someone whom you believe has a great need in their life to understand what God's forgiveness looks like. You have that in your head? I'm going to ask you just to kind of keep that person at the forefront of your thoughts this morning. Someone whom you might have interaction with this week. Who desperately needs to hear what you're about to hear. And I'm going to pray that God is going to allow you to be a force in that person's life this week. First of all, that you'd be bold and that you'd be willing to speak the truth in love about what it means to really experience the forgiveness of God. So, we're going to look at Ephesians as we've been doing over the last, well, we started last week. This, this week, obviously, we're in our second one. Um, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1 whenever you're ready, but I'm going to pray in just a minute while you're doing that. We've we've subtitled this first four weeks, His Nature, My Need. If you picked up one of the bulletins when you came in this morning, you saw that it's up around the very top of the notes, His Nature, My Need, because that's the characteristic of God, to meet us right at the point of our need. So let's pray for that person that you have on your mind right now, and I'm going to pray for us specifically in this auditorium, that God will speak to us first. And then we can speak to others. So would you join me in that? Father, I, I know that our intention of being here this morning is not a surprise to you. Some might even be here this morning against their will. Some have come out of habit. But in every case, Father, whether out of habit or whether because we're just so excited to hear more from you, I ask that you would use this time to speak specifically into our lives personally. Father, when you speak to us and we have our relationship right with you, then we're able to speak into the lives of others. So God, I ask that you would make your word alive and that you would make it active and that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us with understanding this morning. God, I ask that you would do this as we look into your word, especially into the book of Ephesians. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody here uh, in particular study um, the early days of Wall Street and you're familiar with the name Hetty Green? Nah, I didn't think so. Okay, so I want to show you an image of Hetty Green so you get a, an image of this person in your mind who I'm about to tell you about. Looks like a friendly sort, doesn't she? Some of you just love to have over to dinner. Hetty Green had a particular reputation on Wall Street. Uh, matter of fact, she was um, a, a young woman who received a very large inheritance from her father, who was a very successful whaler on, on the east coast of the United States. He, he lived in the area of Boston. Uh, she was greatly influenced by her grandfather. She was raised in a Quaker family. Quakers are extremely conservative. Um, think, think Amish, okay, Quakers very, very conservative, and Hetty had received an inheritance from her dad as a very young woman in her teenage years, she received a, a $15.6 million inheritance when her dad died, and that's in the 1870s, so you can imagine what that would be worth today, all right? So, Hetty was very, very determined to take her Quaker upbringing and combine it with what she had received from her dad and become a master of finance. As a matter of fact, she became so good at investing money, she was America's wealthiest woman by 1915. She mastered Wall Street. But every time you saw Hetty, she looked like that like she'd been raised on lemons just a pucker to her face. She wore black every place she went. She was extremely cheap to the degree that Hetty was actually known for carrying water to her office on Wall Street and bringing her oatmeal with her and setting water in a pan on a radiator in the office to heat her water so that she could add her oatmeal to it so she wouldn't have to pay to heat it at home. She would want to pay for the gas. Thus, she earned the reputation, the name, the Witch of Wall Street. She was something to be um, confronted with on a regular basis, and she was powerful. She had a lot of influence. But Hetty identified herself with her money to the degree that when her own son broke his leg, she scoured over New York City trying to find a free medical clinic to get him treatment in. Now mind you, at this point in time, she had amassed over $100 million in early 1900s money. And yet she was looking for free medical care for her son. Now she took so long to find medical care for him and got kicked out of so many clinics because she was so wealthy that by the time she actually got him to a professional physician that she paid, he had to have his leg amputated. Stingy with a capital S. Now, what drives a person to be like that? A Hetty had perceived her value was in her money. It's why she fought so hard to keep it. That was her identity, what she had amassed. Now here's what I'm here to tell you this morning, and I hope Ephesians makes it really clear for you. Many believers are like Hetty and they suffer from spiritual deprivation. Even though there's this massive storehouse of wealth that God says, I have all these things for you, but yet we're living in the shadows with our dark clothing and trying to heat our water on radiators, living in the simplest means, not taking advantage of the great storehouse that God has for us. Theologians have called the book of Ephesians God's checkbook, the Christian's checkbook from God because it tells us who we are and what we have. Some of that you saw last week, that you are chosen in Him. Uh, Here's the danger in mentioning chosen again. We really get hung up on the issue of predestination and election. And if you were in the Saturday night service last week, you caught some of that. We we had an hour of conversation after the Saturday night service, just in Q&A for people trying to figure out this issue of predestination and election. All good stuff. And I'm sure throughout the week, people continue to question. I don't comprehend this issue of election. How could God predestine us? Here's the problem with focusing on the issue of being chosen. We miss the fact that God chose us. We get so caught up in the initial little details of being predestined, we forget God chose us. So let me remind you what Ephesians is going to tell us. First of all, we're chosen in him. We saw that in verse 4 last week. He chose us in him. Today, we're going to look at this issue of we've been redeemed in Him. Verse 7, in Him, we have redemption through His blood. And now, next week, we're going to look at these two, sealed in Him and our inheritance in Him, verses 13 and verse 11. Do you notice the predominant factor in every one of those? In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. Four times in 14 in verses, you're told it's in God. God. So here's how Ephesians really challenges me. And it's not theologically, even though it's a theologically very deep book. This is how it challenges me. It challenges me to see our church, our community of biblical believers as a group of people who are witnesses to the privilege of the high honor of being deeply imbued with God's presence in our life. And covered and clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit to the degree that we leak this out to the communities who's watching us. It doesn't challenge me as much theologically as it does to see ourselves that we have this immense honor and privilege of being a witness to people who are desperately looking to understand God. So this is what Ephesians requires of you it requires a change in your perspective. Mine as well. That we not focus on the earthly issues, the clutching to the things that we have here, but rather that we see in view of eternity everything that God has given us in Christ. And it's an incredibly high honor. It instills in you a sense of self-worth. And this is how it's achieved. It's achieved through the knowledge that you've been chosen. That you've been redeemed, that you've been sealed, and that you've been destined in Christ. Uh, Parents, this morning, you teach those four things to your children, you'll never have an issue with them identifying themselves as someone who is worthless. They will always see themselves as someone as high value to God, because we matter to God. That's what Ephesians is about. God chose us because we matter to him. And that's where that sense of self-worth comes from, and it leaks out of us when we really comprehend that. So, yep, we matter to God, but here's a 180-degree turn. The, the danger in knowing that we matter to God is thinking that God needs us. And the truth of Scripture is, God doesn't need us to complete his plan. It's, he doesn't need us. He's not deficient without us. If we begin by approaching God that he needs us, then the whole redemption story centers on us rather than on God. But the redemption story centers on Christ. I know it's a big church word, redemption, it's probably the only place you ever hear it unless you go to a redemption center of some type to maybe trade in bonus points. But this word redemption has very specific meaning that's important for us to get down to understand the book of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible open, you go to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll also see it on the screen, you're going to see the word redemption repeated several times. Let me show you a couple Greek words that are associated with it. I want to explain... If you're new to New Hope, why we use the Greek language and the Hebrew language is very important for you to understand. It's not to teach you Greek, by the way, okay? I'm not trying to do that. It's not necessary. The, The ancient people, when they wrote, they wrote in color pictures. In our English language, we very much are black and white people, concrete thinkers, especially Americans in the West, So we speak in black and white terms. We write in black and white terms. But they wrote in word pictures. So when you see the next word that's coming up, it's the word agorazo, and it it means redemption. It literally, let's put that one up on the screen, agorazo. I want you to see the definition for that. Agorazo means buying or purchasing. And it says trading there in the definition. So here's what the ancients were thinking. Going to the marketplace... In the Middle East is something everyone should experience because the haggling, the buying, the trading, the selling taking place is very, very poignant in people's minds. So when an individual like Paul wrote the word agorazo, thinking of redeemed, he's thinking of someone going to the marketplace and doing this bartering, buying back and forth. But it's used in conjunction with this next word. It's in your notes as well, lutroo. There are several words that represent redemption in the Greek language, but here's the next one. You're only going to see two this morning. It means to be released from captivity. So here's why this one was important to the ancients. In the Roman world, there were six million slaves. That far exceeds the United States during the Civil War days. Six million people living in bondage under their master. And for lutro to be used as a word for redemption, release from captivity, that resonated with people in the first century church because of this. If you had amassed some degree of debt in your life and you had a person whom you owned the debt to and you could not pay it, that individual could come and require of you, your son, your daughter, yourself, your wife, to pay the debt They would come into slavery under your household and they would be in permanent bondage unless the dad who perhaps wanted to buy his son back out of slavery or his daughter back out of slavery could put together and scrape together enough coins to go to the marketplace and begin haggling with people over the price of his lost son or his lost daughter. And so the agarazzo would take place and the lutroo and the bargaining would take place and the purchasing and then the release from captivity. So what Paul is saying here in redemption, he's talking about the freeing of a slave. That's lutrosis in the ultimate form, the buying back of a slave. And that's precisely what Christ's sacrifice did for us on the cross. He paid the redemption price to buy for himself Personally, to buy us back. In a more modern day illustration for you to help you get this in your head, it was shared with me many years ago, but it's a true story of something that actually happened. A, a boy in the 1940s given a beautiful sailing boat by his dad, um, a, a scale model, but one that you could actually put in the water. Now this is before the days of remote controls, before the days of motor, motorized boats. And This particular boy had a string attached to his boat. And he would go to the lake where he was at and sail the boat out in the water. And as far as he wanted to let the string out, just like on a kite, the boat would sail away. Well, one particular day, he's doing this. He has this beautiful boat that his dad bought him, large sails on it. The wind comes through and catches the sails and snaps the string, and the boat sails away. And the boy is crushed because it was a gift from his dad. He has no way to retrieve it. He goes home and tells his dad the story, and he says, I'm sorry. A couple days later, the boy's walking down the street in his hometown. He sees a toy store, and he looks in the glass window of the toy store, and he sees, of all things, an identical boat to his boat. And as he gets closer, presses his face to the glass, he looks at it, and he sees his initial on the boat, and he realizes, that's my boat! That, that's mine! So he runs into the store, he tells the shopkeeper, that's my boat! You, you have my boat in the window, could I have it back, please? To which the store owner says, I'm sorry, son, that's my boat. That's not your boat. Matter of fact, I bought it a few days ago. I paid a lot of money for it. Somebody came into the store, said that they had found it, wondered if I'd be interested in selling it because it's in perfect condition, and I, I bartered with them. I bargained for it, and it's in the window. You can buy it from me, but that's not your boat. I own it. And the boy ran home, told his dad what had happened, and his dad scraped together the coin and said, son... Go buy back your boat. And the boy went down to the store, bartered with the owner, and bought back that which was rightfully his. See, he bought back out of bondage that which had belonged to him originally. So when you hear that image, you think, lutrosis. That's Jesus on the cross. He paid the redemption price to buy us back. Well, we're not the only things that are in slavery, Humankind, fallen man, is not the only thing that's in bondage to sin. Did you know that? God says in his word that all of creation is in bondage. The rocks, the hills, the roses, the frogs, all of creation fell at the time man fell. Look with me on the screen at Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Every time I hear of an earthquake someplace on planet Earth, I think of the groaning of creation. See, it's not supposed to be that way. Creation is groaning, waiting for the return of the king. So everything is being held by a captor right now, and the captor is sin. And sin is not only the captor, it's also the slave owner, and it demands a price for the release. And death is the price that had to be paid. So here's where we come into Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, and Paul uses the word redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. So right away, you see the redemption price. What is it? His blood. That's the redemption price that had to be paid. And the price, ask us this question, why blood? Why did Jesus have to die? I hear that question asked quite a bit. Why did Jesus have to die, and why did it require that he have to shed blood? Well, here's the simple answer. This one comes from Hebrews 9.22, because God said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Okay, that's the basic answer. But what's the root of that? Why the shedding of blood? Well, for one, it's God's standard. That should be enough. But let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, And let's see what God's standard actually looks like. You'll see it on the screen, Leviticus 17, verse 11. God says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Anybody here make your living in the medical world? A few of you, okay. Can you see a human body alive without blood in it? No, you can't. I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's medical school 101, right? You don't have blood. You don't have life. So God is telling us the reverse. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, which tells us that blood is really important to God. And he says, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Blood is so important to God and he actually said, your soul can be bought back through Blood. That explains why when God is talking with Cain after he murdered Abel, go all the way back to Genesis, and you see the first murder take place. Cain kills his brother Abel. God shows up and he says, Cain, where's your brother? Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. God says, I tell you the truth, your brother's blood screams to me from the ground because the blood is alive and has great significance to God. So blood, human blood, is very important to God. But God instituted the sacrificial system. And he said, I've given you the sacrificial system. Blood can make atonement for you. Finish the verse with me. To make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The problem with the sacrificial system and the animals that were brought in to make atonement is that it didn't carry away the sin. It only covered it over. See, the blood of animals can't take away your sin. That's what we're told according to scripture. Hebrews 10:4 says this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Jesus had to do it personally. So for a long period of time, God allowed animals to be sacrificed because the blood covered it but didn't carry it away. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 9:12. Christ's sacrifice was not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, so we got the redemption issue down. What about the forgiveness component? Because verse 7 says, you're not only redeemed and bought back, you're also forgiven, forgiveness of sin, which is the primary result of the redemption." So think of it this way. If you were here last week for Sunday of the month, we had communion. Tables were set up here in the front and in the back and up in the balcony. And at some point, we each held a cup in our hand and we said, we remember what Jesus did on the cross because this cup, he said, is gonna be the new covenant in his blood. This is the way he actually said it. Look on the screen. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus use the exact same illustration at that point for us to remember every time we get together for communion? Redemption brings forgiveness. We understand that. But what does forgiveness mean? And you need to hear this very closely, especially for those people you have in your head this morning, those individuals you're thinking of that need to hear this. The word forgiveness, so you're not going to see the word on, on the screen. It's, it's the, the Greek word is atheimi. And it means to carry away. So when you're forgiven, something is carried away. Why is that powerful imagery? The highest, holiest day of the entire year for the nation of Israel is called the Day of Atonement. Today, it's known as Yom Kippur. We hear that phrase used in the news. Yom Kippur over in Israel today. Well, that's the high holy day. One special day in the entire year when the high priest himself, not just any priest, the high priest, would have brought before him two goats, two white animals, unblemished, unspotted. And the high priest himself, on behalf of the entire nation, would kill one goat and would gather up the blood from that goat and go inside the temple to the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle the blood from that unblemished goat on the mercy seat of God, which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, after he's done with that, he'd go back outside to the remaining goat that was still alive. And on that goat, the whole nation leaned in to watch. Because to that goat, the high priest would take both his hands and place them on the head of the goat and say, Upon you I place the sins of the people. God allowed for that in the book of Leviticus. And that scapegoat was led outside of the city, out into the wilderness, to the deepest, darkest regions and there that scapegoat was left in the wilderness. He had carried away the sins of the people, as it were, on his head, never to return to the city again. So you understand the imagery that when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist is on the Jordan River and he's baptizing people and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming at him, Look at his response, John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That imagery is in their head. He's carrying it away, never to return again. So here's what your God did. Looking down through the corridors of time, he sees this moment in time. Before he ever shaped the earth, he determined that Jesus Christ, literally his son, he would place the sins of the world upon the head of Jesus to me and carry it away so that Jesus would make payment for what would send us to hell. He bought us back. And here's the really tragic thing about that truth many Christians that I meet, many individuals act as if God still holds their sins against them. And that's not the truth of Scripture. It's not consistent. They either forget or they don't know that God has taken their sins upon himself and he's carried them away never to be seen again. He doesn't hold them against us. That's why the writer of Psalms 103 said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sins from you. In the mind of the ancient people, especially in the Hebrews, east to west represented infinity, never to be seen again. So God's forgiveness is infinite there's no limit to it. He takes away your sins, never to be seen again. That's why Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't exist. It's gone. And You might come back and say, I'm not worthy of that. You're right. I'm not either. We're not worthy. But the forgiveness that's undeserved is free, and it's complete. And because we continue in sin, the truth is, we need the continued forgiveness of cleansing. Truth, you do not need the continued forgiveness of redemption. It was once for all done for everyone. But you need the continued forgiveness of cleansing because when you continue in sin, it has a profound effect upon your life. It hinders your relationship with other people. It hinders your relationship with God the Father. It keeps you from being what you completely can be. It hinders your usefulness, your your ability to have a close relationship with God. It has a harmful effect on our life. So we're told to daily confess our sins, not because we need God to restore us back to the place where he likes us again, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why David started out his prayer this way. He's already a believer in God when he says... Father, search me and know me. Look upon my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. And create in me a clean heart, God. He wasn't asking for a garage sale heart. He's asking for God to give him a brand new start. Not that he needed redemption again, but he needed the cleansing That's why when Jesus was using the the sample prayer, the, the disciples came to him and said, teach us how to pray, Father, or Jesus. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who's in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Here on earth, I want all that done, just like it is in heaven. Then he goes to his needs. He says, give us this day our needs, our daily bread. What's next? Forgive us our sins, Who's Jesus talking to at that point? His disciples. They needed to know that they could be forgiven on a daily basis, that they can be cleansed. Now here's the pushback that comes from people. Mark, you have no idea what I've done. You, you just don't know. You don't know how deep it is. The truth of Scripture is this. There are no second-class Christians Every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. Oh, come on, you guys. I know it's 11.59 in the morning, but every sin is forgiven forever. That's the truth of Scripture. That's an exciting truth. Look at what God has given us. Look at it this way. God sees everything, right? God sees everything. He saw what we were in the past. He sees what we are today. He sees what you will be tomorrow. Yet, even in spite of that, He chose us in him. See, there's no sin that you can commit that's too great for God to forgive. Truth, I know this might sound offensive to you. If you doubt this morning the full forgiveness of God, you are guilty of denying the capacity of God. You're saying, I can out-sin God, therefore I'm greater than God. God. God says, no, it's according to my riches and my grace. Verse 7 says, according to the riches of his grace. Well, how vast is God's storehouse? How rich is he? That's why Paul finishes it by saying, he lavished it upon us. I enjoy watching these different reality shows that deal with the guys that are living in Alaska. A lot of fun for me. And there's, there's one particular one that deals with a family who's doing what would be called uh, subsistence living. They they harvest everything off the land, and they they catch their own salmon, and they raise their own crops, and they they butcher out their own beef, and they're always just eking out enough to get by. That's subsistence living. Our God does not give us subsistence forgiveness. He doesn't say, I'm just going to barely coven your sins if you're just careful not to overdo it. That's not God. He lavished it upon us, according to Paul. So we cannot sin beyond God's grace. And the truth is, never worry. Your sin will outstrip God's forgiveness. But there's danger in that. That's why Paul went on to say, but should we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid. No, don't don't, don't ever do that. So that's why Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As wicked... As you might feel this morning, as wicked as your sin might be, or the sin of that person whom you have in your mind this morning, they can never approach the greatness of God's grace. God will always forgive. Our God doesn't do anything halfway. So here's how it ends this morning. He says in verse 9: In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So you've been given two things: you've been given wisdom, and you've been given insight. Now you might say to me this morning, I don't feel very wise and I don't feel like I have a whole lot of insight. Well, we're talking here about two very specific categories, Sophia and phronesis. And Sophia means wisdom of the ultimate things. Look at this word up on the screen, understanding of ultimate things. That's the word Sophia. What is that? Life and death. Sin and Righteousness time and eternity god has given you that through the power of the holy spirit and what else has he given you phronesis the practical understanding the comprehension of needs now this is really important for where he's going because he's about to tell us this last thing that we have a mystery there's a mystery that's been revealed to us if we're believers in jesus so we have this megas understanding of big things and we have this insight into daily affairs And that should help us to understand that when individuals whom we know that are far from God look at the Bible and say to us, I can't make heads or tails of this, it doesn't make any sense to me, well it's because they don't have the insight and spiritual wisdom, the forgiveness of sins hasn't taken place yet. But for those who are believers in Jesus, it's been given to them. He's lavished wisdom upon us. So we're no longer ignorant of the things of God. So Paul goes on to say, because you're in God's inner circle, he's gonna give you some mystery. you are get to share in a secret that God kept secret from all of the ancients all the way up until the time of Jesus. And he began revealing it to the church. This is why sin is shredding and ripping and tearing everything apart around us. You read the headlines, every day it seems like there's a new school shooting. Every day you look in the paper, you see where someone has murdered someone else. Someone has cheated someone else. That's because sin is shredding and tearing things apart. But what Paul tells us this mystery of God's will in verse nine is, is that God one day is going to bring everything back together again under Jesus Christ, under his rule. And the time of the gathering, we're told it's the fullness of time. You look at that very closely in verse 10. The fullness of time, that means the millennial kingdom. That means after the rapture of the church, after the tribulation, after the earth has been devastated God will bring everything back together again under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So let me sum it up this way. When the completion of history comes to an end and the kingdom arrives and the new heaven and the new earth are established, there will be a summing up of all things in Christ. And at that time, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, both things in heaven and things in earth, according to Philippians. So the future of the earth and all of creation that's groaning under this fall of sin is about to be restored. What God designed in ages past is going on right now. He will bring to completion in the future. And the cool news for us is, Paul's telling us, we get to be part of this. That's the gift that God has given us. So what do you do with this this morning? What do you do with this information? Well, if you're here this morning and maybe church is really new to you, you've never came to a place where you've said, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. There's a truth I've got to share with you and I will be remiss in my responsibilities if I don't. When men stand before the judgment seat of God, God will only be interested in one thing, What have you done with the information that you gained this morning? What have you done with this truth of who Jesus is? Because God's word is crystal clear. Jesus' death on the cross and God's sacrificial giving of his son is your only means of salvation. So God summed it up this way. Verse 12 of Acts 4, and there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So if that's you this morning, you've never dealt with that issue, I I really ask you to consider strongly, where are you at in relation to God? And if you want to talk to me after the service, I'd be honored and thrilled to speak with you. And, And if you can't do that, grab one of those welcome cards. Just write your name down in there and say, Will you please pray for me about this issue? I'll follow up with you. I'd be happy to do that if you want to share that with me. But I know I'm talking to a large majority of believers this morning, and here's where I want to end with you. We ask ourselves this question when we look at this. Why has God done so much for us? Why has he blessed us with every spiritual blessing? Why has he chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Why has he made you holy and blameless? Why has he predestined you? Why are you redeemed? Why has he lavishly given you forgiveness and wisdom and insight? Because that is his nature. That is my need to meet me right at the point of my need because I matter to God. If you can leave here this morning with that in your head, church, that's just got to leak out of you to everyone that you influence throughout the course of the week. You matter to the God of the universe to the degree that he bought you back. How cool is that? Amen. Let me pray with you that you'll take that out the door with you this morning. Father, because we would confess we are really prone to be like the heady greens of this world, we have a propensity to believe that these things here on earth matter so much and they consume so much of our time. And I'm as guilty as anybody, Father. And we have to come before you and just confess and say, Father, help us not to be so distracted with the things of the world. Help us to start there and realign our focus on what you've called us to do. Each one of us, Father, in this auditorium will stand before you one day, and we will give an accounting for who we are, whether we belong to you in Jesus or not. And only you know where we stand. But, Father, I know for the the majority of people in this auditorium this morning who are believers That day has to be so poignant in our mind and so real, Father, that we can't help but tell other people about what we know to be true. So God, here's what I ask for our church. Father, I ask that for everyone who's been in the auditorium over the course of this weekend, that as we go forward through this week, we not only wear boldness, but that we wear confidence and knowledge in the great promise that we've been redeemed and we've been sealed and we have an inheritance. Father, give us that confidence as we leave here this morning. Help us to walk a little taller. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.